123 testing 123 this is radio free mormon on the air broadcasting behind enemy lines tonight's episode on teaching sunday school now as every latter-day saint knows there is no greater calling than teaching in fact there are teachers throughout every ward in the church there are teachers of the primary kids there are teachers of the young women there are teachers of the young men there are teachers of the grown-ups There are teachers every step along the way in the LDS church structure. And as fate would have it, I have been a teacher in various callings throughout my membership in the LDS church. My first teaching calling came shortly after I was baptized back in 1978, and I was called to teach the eight-year-old class. I had absolutely no idea what I was going to teach them. I did not know anything about the gospel. I knew nothing about the scriptures. And I was actually terrified to teach the eight-year-olds. And thank God that the church provided me with a manual so I could read through the lesson and I could use that as my tool to teach my classes. I also remember that on one day, a member of the primary presidency, and this is just the ward primary presidency, was going to visit in my class to observe me teaching these eight-year-olds. And frankly, I was terrified, if you can imagine, I was terrified that this primary president would see how I taught, be horrified by it, and I would be weighed in the balances and found wanting. Because I was so scared about the entire situation, I even remember what the subject matter of that class was, and it was the book of Job. Of course, it was an extremely simplified version of teaching the book of Job because it was designed for the eight-year-olds, and it was a good thing it was a simplified version because I, as the teacher, knew less about the church and the gospel than the eight-year-olds I was teaching. But apparently, I did a good enough job to where I didn't get immediately fired or called on the carpet in front of the class by the primary president, which is somehow, I think, in my subconscious, what it was I was expecting. From that point, of course, I was called on a mission to Japan. I returned home in November of 1981 and took up residence with my folks in Austin, Texas. I was in a new ward with new members that I did not know, and not too long after being there, I was called upon to teach a lesson in the elders' quorum. And once again, I was filled with dread, because here I am now, not teaching the eight-year-olds. Sure, I know more now because I've been studying and I've been on a mission, but here I'm teaching to the elders of the quorum. But I had a lesson manual to help me out. I worked hard on the lesson. I made handouts. I remember going down to my dad's office at the real estate agency where he worked in Austin, Texas, with him in order to use the copy machine there to copy out handouts for all the members of the class. And these handouts were directly from the manual. There was no creative thinking going on here. I was just trying my best to parrot the narrative that was given to me in a way that was most faithful to what it was that I was told in the manual I was supposed to teach. Because I guess a good parrot is the one who parrots what the parrot is supposed to parrot. It did not occur to me at the time that I'm teaching these guys stuff they've heard a hundred times before. There's nothing novel here. There's nothing to be concerned about. There's nothing to be scared about. And yet I was definitely concerned about how this lesson would be received. I don't know if I was worried that they would start pointing at me in the middle of my presentation during the elders quorum class and just start laughing at me, but I'm happy to respond that that did not happen and actually the lesson went through fine. And I am absolutely positive that there is no member who was present in that class to hear my lesson, who is still alive today, who remembers that class at all. That is how unremarkable it was in retrospect. That much I would bank on. 
But I went through the 80s as a student at the University of Texas, both undergraduate, where I graduated in 1984 with a Bachelor of Arts degree with a major in dance. And then I took about a year and a half off to work, get married, and start a family. It was sometime during that year and a half I realized that a Bachelor of Arts degree with a major in dance wasn't going to get me really far in the world, and I needed to really be serious and focus on something that would have the potential of making an income big enough to support a family. And that's when I went back to the University of Texas at Austin in the fall of 1986 to study law. I graduated from the law school three years later in June of 1989 and made my way up to Washington State where I was able to get a job as a newly hired wet-behind-the-ears deputy prosecutor in the prosecuting attorney's office. That started in January of 1990. And for the next two years, I was called upon to teach the Gospel Doctrine class. Now, for those of you who aren't familiar with the Mormon nomenclature, the Gospel Doctrine class is the name of the Sunday school class for adults. And the curriculum is, or at least supposed to be, the scriptures. There is a four-year rotation. The first year is the Old Testament. The second year is the New Testament. The third year is the Book of Mormon. And the fourth year is the Doctrine and Covenants and Church History, although it's much heavier on the Doctrine and Covenants than it is on the Church History. And then the cycle repeats itself, and you begin again with the Old Testament. Well, I had a number of experiences, of course, teaching the Gospel Doctrine class, and I worked hard to have a good class and a good lesson for my students every week. My goal, my overriding goal in teaching Gospel Doctrine was to make sure that everybody who came to my class learned something new that week, and that meant that I had to really study and prepare for the class myself in the week leading up to giving the class. Toward the end of the second year of my teaching the Gospel Doctrine class, I believe that I had come up with a number of ideas that helped my Gospel Doctrine class be successful, or at least more successful than any other Gospel Doctrine class I had been to, because frankly, most Gospel Doctrine classes, even though they are taught by adults to adults, are taught much in the same way that I had taught the primary class back in 1978. A person has the manual, they go through the manual, they have the class read the scriptures that they're told to read in the manual, and then the teacher asks the questions that are suggested in the manual. This material is generally not very thought-provoking, and when you've been through it a number of years, it can become actually incredibly boring. To the point where, in the normal course of things, a gospel doctrine class, or most any other class in the church, is not designed to provoke thought, but designed to inhibit thought. The class, through the manual, and through the teacher who is abiding by the manual, as the teacher is supposed to do, is not really there to teach anything, but to rehearse what it is that the class already knows, because it's what the church wants the members to be taught. It tends to be very shallow, it tends to be superficial, it tends to be a mile wide and an inch deep. Now, all of this is leading up to the fact that I was going through some papers the other night, and I found that back in 1991, toward the end of the year, I actually wrote a paper. I don't think I submitted this anywhere, but it was a paper that I wrote where I put down the ideas that I thought led to having a good gospel doctrine class. They were ideas that I had implemented with some success. And so I wrote them down in a paper. It's dated October 25th, 1991. It's 26 pages long. So obviously, I have a lot to say about the subject of teaching the Gospel Doctrine class. And I titled it, Remarks on Teaching the Gospel Doctrine class. Once again, dated October 25th, 1991. 
Here's how it goes. By the way, I've got to tell you, I have not read this in decades. So this is going to be a cold reading. I am certain that there are things in here that I wrote in 1991 that are going to cause me embarrassment today. But at any rate, I want to give you, the audience, a flavor of me, or at least the me that existed back on October 25th of 1991. You may find some similarities to the way I am today. You may find some dissimilarities. But anyway, I am anxious to find out what it was that I thought over 30 years ago was important to know for any gospel doctrine teacher. Here we go. I have been teaching the gospel doctrine class in my ward for almost the past two years. During that time, I have come up with a number of techniques which make my class one to which the students look forward each Sunday. Now, these ideas are not for everybody, only for those who want to have wildly successful classes. Yes, I actually put that there in parentheses. These ideas are not for everybody, only for those who want to have wildly successful classes. Oh my gosh, I'm going to regret reading this. Cold, I can tell right now. In fact, I go on, in fact, some of them run counter to the accepted wisdom in the area. Nevertheless, here they are for the taking. Number one, please, 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 and this is in all bold face, Please, please, please don't accept the call in the first place unless you have a burning desire to teach the gospel. I go on. You have no obligation to accept a call to teach just because it is offered to you. Oh my gosh. In 1991, I'm already parting from the party line. Because obviously, if you listen to leaders in the church, and especially President Iring, who's addressed this subject repeatedly in general conference, yes, you do have an obligation to accept any call that's offered to you. So over 30 years ago, I'm saying the opposite. You have no obligation to accept a call to teach just because it is offered to you. Obviously, I was already on the road to apostasy then. In fact, probably the worst thing in the world that you could do is accept a call to teach for no other reason than that you were asked to. Not only is it absolutely no fun for you, but imagine the impact on the rest of the class. We sometimes labor under the idea that anybody can teach a class as long as they follow the instructions in the lesson manual. That is a crock. Yes, I actually said the C word. That is a crock. Some 1% of the membership may be improved in their skills by a teacher development class. Now, it's interesting I say that because there were, and probably are still today, teacher development classes in the church. It had its own manual. It was called Teaching No Greater Calling. And the idea was you take your teachers, put them through this class, and it makes them better teachers. I am disagreeing with that idea here. I said some 1% of the membership may be improved in their skills by a teacher development class. Other than this, though, the fact is that the ability to teach well is a gift of the Spirit, not unlike prophecy or healing. The gift of teaching is called, in the Scriptures, the Word of Wisdom or the Word of Knowledge. And there I cite to the book Understanding Paul by Richard Lloyd Anderson, page 114. And the gift of teaching, like the other spiritual gifts, are divided to every man severally, according to the will of God. I reference 1 Corinthians 12, 11. That means that not everybody has it, but only those to whom it has been given. Obviously, I feel that I am one to whom it has been given. That's okay, though, I say. That's okay, though, because those without the gift of teaching are compensated by having one or more of the other gifts. There is no discrimination here. It's just that my gift is the best gift. That's all. Some gospel doctrine teachers are more equal than other gospel doctrine teachers. That's obviously what I'm getting at. Okay, let me go on with what I actually wrote. 
The problem, though, is in taking those without the gift of teaching and putting them in charge of teaching. It's like trying to put a square peg in a round hole. It just doesn't work. At least not if we're really trying to accomplish something besides forcing students to endure hours of mind-numbing boredom. Sure, it's easy to find someone who can talk about something for 40 minutes or so and take up the class time. The majority of Gospel Doctrine classes attest to that fact. But to really accomplish something, to lead students to new understandings of Gospel Doctrines, to increase the student's awareness of the expanse and depth of the Gospel, to stimulate the students to study on their own, all this requires someone with the gift of teaching. No substitute will do. So that's what I have to say under my first heading. My second heading is number two, learn more about the subject than anybody else in the class. This is what your preparation time is for. After all, you've got a whole week between classes. Use that time. And what have you been doing with the rest of your life up to now? Watching Saturday morning cartoons? Study, research, investigate, ponder, pray. Never settle for the easy solution of just standing in front of your class and rattling off the elements out of the assigned material that are so obvious any fool could have figured them out by reading it himself. And I will add, or herself, since I'm reading this now in 2023, even though it was originally written back in 1991. Any teacher could do that, and most do. Struggle to come up with ideas and insights that are useful to the group you are addressing. Do anything to keep from telling them things they've heard a billion times before. Now, I'm fully aware that the traditional concept of teaching a Mormon Sunday school class is different than what I have outlined. What is usually encouraged is that all the members of the class read the assignment and share with each other their insights and knowledge so that they, quote, teach one another the doctrine of the kingdom, end quote, D&C 8877. Of course, this is a nice idea. In fact, I have no doubt that this is what the Lord would prefer. But the sad fact is, if you, as a teacher, think that more than 5% of the class is going to actually read the assignment each week, you're living in a dream world, and it's high time you woke up. The majority of students are fat, dumb, and happy, and are perfectly contented to remain that way unless someone can shake them out of their complacency and get them moving. A Mormon at rest tends to remain at rest unless acted upon by an outside force. That outside force must often come from the teacher. Wow, I'm certainly saying this pretty boldly, but I'm having trouble disagreeing with anything that I wrote in principle. I might have framed it differently today, but yeah, I think I'm hitting the nail on the head. I go on. My personal belief is that a teacher's mission is not so much to instruct as to galvanize. Nobody in my class takes notes when I teach. They would be far better off if they did, because they're not going to remember diddly of what I say from week to week. Obviously, I feel that what I'm saying is important. So I'm not kidding myself by thinking that the sensational gems I unveil for them each Sunday are going to be retained in their memories for more than a few days tops. I do hope I was writing this with somewhat tongue-in-cheek at least. But what I do believe strongly is that once given a glimpse of gospel treasures, 
a greater proportion of students will be moved upon to begin plumbing the depths of the gospel on their own than will be so moved by any other method. This will still be a relatively small number, but it is much larger than the amount who will study the scriptures because the gospel doctrine teacher harps on them every week to do so. Hmm. We go to number three. Teach so that the best informed member of the class will learn something new. There's the principle right there. I did not look at this paper beforehand. We're already on page four, but I remembered that principle. I still apply it today. I try and teach classes or podcasts such that everybody coming to it, or hopefully the vast majority of people coming to it, will learn something new, will gain some kind of new insight, some new thought, some new idea. So once again, I say, number three, teach so that the best informed member of the class will learn something new. Once again, this is an idea at variance with the generally accepted wisdom on the subject. What is usually promulgated as the thing to do is to teach to the weakest member of the class so as not to hazard surprising him or her with any new doctrinal dimensions he had never before suspected and thereby precipitating his departure from the church. Of course, this attitude overlooks the obvious fact that any member of the church who is going to leave simply because he or she discovers more about the teachings of the church doesn't belong in the church in the first place. And the church as a whole would be better off without him. Oh my goodness. Yes, I'm definitely (laughs) channeling the spirit as I speak with such force and directness. Now, many people will protest that this sounds uncaring. Maybe it does sound that way, but it is nonetheless true. And it needs to be recognized if we are ever to do away with the specious argument that we must continue to teach to the weakest member in any given class. And of course, the weakest member is always going to be the investigator who is present or the new member. And even if there's no investigator present or new member present, generally there are enough members of a class who are called the orthodoxy police, or at least whom I call the orthodoxy police, who will try and keep the teacher teaching solely from the manual so as not to disturb the feelings of any potential investigator or new member who might, might be present in the class. By the way, that was just all commentary. That wasn't something I wrote. I'll return to my paper, now turning to page five. The reason it is so vital to do away with this argument, and similarly to do away with this practice, is because when we teach to the weakest member of the class, we are at the same time condemning all the other members in the class who are better educated in the precepts of the gospel to complete and absolute tedium. Not just once, but week after yawn-filled week. We in the church often define the concept of damnation as a situation in which we cannot progress. And there I cite to page 234 of Mormon Doctrine. When we teach only to the weakest member of the class, we are in effect damning that person by refusing to teach him anything new, an integral part of continued progression. Naturally, we are at the same time damning everybody else in the class since they already know everything the weakest member knows. And if the weakest member isn't learning anything new, the rest of the class certainly won't be learning anything new either. Such a course of conduct is confusing to the class members who believe that only through obedience to the gospel can they have eternal life. Nevertheless, 
Part of obeying the gospel is attending one's church meetings. We know that because it's even part of the temple recommend questions about attending one's meetings. And in many of those meetings, one finds oneself in a state of damnation. Is it any wonder that many Mormons wonder, if only subconsciously, why they are damned for being obedient to the gospel? Is it any wonder that many Mormons, unable to reconcile this contradiction, cease attending their meetings and devote their energies in other pursuits? It should be noted, however, that such inert Sunday school classes are a good example of a uniquely Mormon principle enunciated in Doctrine and Covenants section 19 verses 6 through 12 that eternal damnation can last a finite amount of time. In Sunday school class, that amount of time is only about 40 minutes. It just seems to last forever. When I was a child, I remember finding it fascinating to listen to what my elders would talk about. I didn't understand everything they said, but it was challenging and exciting to be exposed to advanced concepts and ideas. It made me exercise my mental faculties to try and keep up with the discussion. On the other hand, I despised those who talked down to me like a child, who tried to teach me things that I had already known for years. I'm sure my experience is not unique. Nevertheless, it is what happens too often in Sunday school class. The capping irony is that there are many members of the church who not only do not mind being treated like a child, but whenever they are asked to assimilate any new information, actually demand to be treated as a child, militantly opposing any such progression. Indeed, is not this the fundamental problem with our public school system? Wow, I'm going to get political here. Is this not the fundamental problem with our public school system in the United States? That the teachers teach to the weakest member of the class, leaving all the potential and interest and vigor of the rest of the students to wither and rot on the vine. The ridiculousness of the situation is increased only by the fact that usually the weakest member isn't interested in learning anyway. The parallel to Sunday school classes should be obvious, and the error should not be repeated. My tack, on the other hand, is not to teach to the weakest member of the class, but rather to teach so that the best informed member of the class will learn something new each week. My view is not to worry about offending some nominally active student while damning the progress of the rest of the class, but to concentrate on making sure that every week no student has spent the class time without progressing to some extent. I see my role then in the opposite light, not to damn the progress of everyone in the class, but to make sure that no one is damned, but that all are edified. This is, of course, why the teacher must be better informed on the subject than anybody else in the class. Now, I would probably also modify that sentence as well as a few other things, but I'm still going to read it to you so you can know where I was back in late 1991. Number four, start class on time. As a Sunday school teacher, you should be very jealous of your time. You are already allocated precious little of it to teach in any depth the material you must cover. Do not let stragglers to Sunday school class erode that valuable stockpile of time that is yours. Opening exercises already take up a good deal of your time. As a rule, Sunday school in my ward lasts 45 minutes, and a good 10 minutes of that is eaten up every week by opening exercises. What makes this worse is that opening exercises is such an inane activity. 
accomplishing absolutely nothing of importance, while taking away a good 22% of teaching time from the Sunday school teachers. In fact, there is altogether too much praying and singing in church. (laughs) Okay, I'm sorry. In fact, there is altogether too much praying and singing in church. Of course, many will look at this statement with shock and say that there can never be too much praying. But that is nonsense. If there cannot be too much praying, why don't we just do it for three hours straight every Sunday? Because we have other things to accomplish as well, like learning the gospel and, in my opinion, exercising ourselves in our spiritual gifts to the edification of each other. But I suppose that's a pipe dream too. All these opening and closing songs and prayers are a holdover from the time before the consolidated meeting schedule when we met at three different times during Sunday. Each of these meetings rightfully had an opening and closing prayer. They also had opening and closing songs, for the most part. But about a decade ago, the church reorganized the meeting schedule so that we meet for one three-hour block on Sundays. Rightfully, there should be an opening prayer and song at the beginning of the three-hour block and a closing prayer and song at the end of the three-hour block. Such a procedure would save time for the important business of learning the gospel. But this is another issue entirely. Let me get back on track. Wow, I'm not very opinionated, am I? Given the situation as it stands, and it probably won't change anytime soon, with opening exercises for Sunday school, what I do is use the stopwatch function on my wristwatch, starting at the instant the congregation is dismissed to their Sunday school classes. Hmm, I didn't remember this. This is interesting to me. Then they have precisely two minutes to get to my class before I begin teaching. Two minutes is plenty of time to get any place you want in the building. Many persons don't make it to the classroom in two minutes because they're not trying. I'm sounding like Captain Von Trapp from The Sound of Music. Instead, they're out socializing in the hallways. If they think I'm going to waste my precious teaching time holding class on the likes of them, they've got another thing coming. (laughs) Forget it. Forget about it. They can come into class late and suffer a modicum of embarrassment by having everyone else turn to look at them. It is my experience that once you begin doing this, the more perceptive members of the Sunday school class, that elusive 5%, will catch on and start hightailing it for your classroom once they are dismissed from opening exercises. Number five, ask questions that make people think. This is a good one. Ask questions that make people think. There are two primary types of questions to avoid in teaching Sunday school. The first is that group of questions, the answers to which are so obvious as to make even the most uninformed member in your class blush. Good examples of these types of questions can be found in the old missionary discussions. Mr. Brown, Joseph Smith saw God the Father and Jesus Christ in the grove of trees. Now, Mr. Brown, who did Joseph Smith see in the grove of trees? Of course, the missionary was told to use these questions as a means of assessing how effectively he was teaching and how well Mr. Brown was picking up on the material. If Mr. Brown had trouble answering the question, it meant that Mr. Brown hadn't understood the material that had been taught. What I am convinced happened in 9 out of 10 cases, however, is that Mr. Brown sure enough had trouble answering the question. Only the problem in 7 out of those 10 cases wasn't that Mr. Brown didn't understand the material, but that he didn't understand the question. Most people with an IQ above room temperature wish to give a meaningful response to a question. They do not wish to parrot back, there's that word again, parrot, they do not wish to parrot back something that has just been told them. 
In fact, they find it insulting, and rightfully so. Not only that, but they don't expect a question to be asking for such parroted information. So when the above missionary says, Mr. Brown, who did Joseph Smith see in the grove of trees? Mr. Brown's thought process is like this. Well, the missionary just told me that Joseph Smith saw God the Father and Jesus Christ in the grove of trees, so he can't possibly be wanting that as an answer. And yet, he hasn't told me anything else in addition at any other time, and I haven't read anything different in the pamphlets they have left with me. What on earth is this missionary looking for in terms of an answer to this question? Is it possible that he really wants me to just repeat what he said? Does he really have that poor an opinion of my intelligence? So that's my reconstructed thought process of the poor Mr. Brown at the short end of this question by the missionary. I go on. By the time all this has gone through Mr. Brown's mind, several moments have passed. And it looks for all the world to the missionary like Mr. Brown is having a tough time answering this incredibly simple question. So the missionary ends up helping Mr. Brown parrot what the missionary just told him. Because it's obvious to the missionary that Mr. Brown didn't pick up on it the first time. On the other hand, Mr. Brown's fears that the missionary only wanted him to repeat what was told him are confirmed, and he begins to look a little more narrowly on the whole process. This is more than just abstract hypothesizing on my part. I had a friend take the missionary discussions who was insulted for precisely the reasons listed above, and I have seen it happen over and over again during the course of the several missions, both full-time and stake, that I have served. The point I am trying to make is that there are two reasons why a teacher is greeted with absolute silence after the posing of a question to the class. The first is that the question is too hard. The second is that the question is too easy. The trick is to come up with questions that are neither too hard nor too easy and thus will elicit response from thoughtful members of the class. The main reason people answer questions is so that they can look intelligent in front of their fellow classmates. Answering a question that everybody already knows the answer to doesn't make one look more intelligent than anyone else, and therefore few people will rush to take the bait. If silence from the class must be encountered, it is preferable to have it come in response to a question that is too hard. That way, when you give them the answer, at least you look smart. <laughs> There is another type of question often asked in Sunday school discussions that should be avoided at all costs. Hmm, I wonder what this is. The question itself varies somewhat, but the response that is sought for is always the same. It is what I call the list. The list is the grouping of things that one must do to inherit eternal life. It generally includes such items as faith in Christ, repent of sins, be baptized, receive the gift of the Holy Ghost, receive the priesthood, if you're a man, obey the commandments, receive your endowment, and be married in the temple. Probably also endure to the end. I might have missed that. Often novel ideas are added to the list, such as read your scriptures and pray. Okay, there, I'm definitely talking tongue-in-cheek. I can tell that even 30 years later. As I said, the questions can vary from what must we do to return to our Heavenly Father to how can we live a life that God would approve of? But the answer is always the same. The list. As a rule, the teacher, after having asked an inane question of his or her choosing, proceeds to field answers from the class and write the list on the chalkboard. It should be noted that the class is generally hesitant about coming up with these answers because they fit in the category of a question that is too easy. The problem with the list 
is that it is a complete waste of time that could be better spent teaching things of value. Everybody already knows that they have to do those things to merit eternal life. Therefore, the act of rehearsing them doesn't constitute teaching in my book. Writing them on the chalkboard in a list isn't going to bring it home any stronger to anyone. If anything, such repetitious list-making as is prevalent in the church merely leads to trivializing the actual doing of those important things. Far preferable to either of the two common mistakes above is to spend time preparing questions that actually make people think. Don't ask for the list. Don't ask people questions that are too easy. Ask questions that require pondering. It's okay if there isn't a pat answer in the manual. It's also okay if you don't have a specific answer you're trying to elicit. Throw it out and see if the class can come up with their own answers. Give them the chance to grow and they will love you for it. Well, at least 5% of the class will love you for it. The rest will go to the bishop and complain. Another stupid question to avoid is, how can we apply this in our lives? Oh my gosh, that is the question that is always asked in church. How can we apply this in our lives? But I say, that's a stupid question and should be avoided. Everybody already knows how these gospel principles can be applied in their own lives. The simple fact is that if they're willing to apply it, they're already doing so. If not, no amount of asking, how can we apply this in our lives, will make any difference. This is nothing but another monumental time waster. My personal belief is that the only possible way that we as teachers can get our students interested in living the gospel is not by asking them how to apply it, but by getting them excited about the teachings of the gospel. And the only way to do this is to teach them new and exciting things. Number six, don't allow incorrect answers to stand. Although some questions you may ask will not have a specific answer you are looking for, but simply be a thought question, the majority of questions will probably have a definite, correct answer. If a question does have a definite, correct answer, you as the teacher are responsible to know the answer to it. If, in response to such a question, a member of the class comes up with an incorrect response, you as the teacher must correct it. Too many teachers are hesitant about challenging an answer given by a class member. This hesitancy may result either from ignorance on the part of the teacher or an unwillingness to offend the student. But it is your responsibility to make sure that nothing but the truth is taught in your class. You are in charge. If you don't correct a wrong answer, you are in effect by your silence validating the wrong answer and others may walk away from class thinking that the wrong answer is in fact correct. Correcting a wrong answer doesn't have to be done in a mean way. I find it effective to stimulate <laughs> I find it effective to simulate the sound of a game show buzzer and say sorry, thank you for playing. That way no feelings are hurt. <laughs> I'll bet. That way no feelings are hurt. Usually people laugh and more importantly, nobody is left with the idea that the incorrect answer is correct. Another thing I see happen a lot is a teacher try to bring around an incorrect answer and transform it by verbal hocus pocus into the correct answer. I have never seen this technique used where it wasn't pathetically obvious to me what was going on. If it is that obvious to me, it's probably that obvious to everyone. And if it's that obvious to everyone, why not just save time and tell the person they're wrong? The possibility also exists 
that a number of people will not see what the teacher is doing. What they see is an incorrect answer given and the teacher nod the head and say yes and then go on to twist the incorrect answer into a correct answer. The unobservant will not see the twisting taking place and will remember only the teacher sanctioning an incorrect answer as being correct and will then walk away from the class believing that which is false to be true. Da-da-dum, a fate worse than death. I added that part. Don't worry about offending someone. When your class sees that you're in charge and know enough to clearly correct a wrong answer, they will have greater confidence in and respect for you, except for the ones who hate your guts, I guess. Your calling is to teach the truth. Doing anything short of this, whether out of ignorance or a misplaced sense of politeness, is inexcusable. I remember once I was teaching a class dealing with eschatological events, the second coming, etc. A young member of the class anxiously volunteered that her mother had a friend whose patriarchal blessing said that he would be one of the two witnesses in Jerusalem referred to in the book of Revelation. Well, there was simply no way I was going to allow so monstrous a fabrication to stand unchallenged in my classroom. I responded tartly, I wouldn't believe that until I saw it. And even then, I wouldn't believe it. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Number eight, over prepare. Most Sunday school classes last approximately 40 minutes, depending on the length of opening exercises. It is important, therefore, that you not prepare for just 40 minutes, especially if you're the type who finds yourself running short of material before the class is over. You may think that the class will like you better for ending earlier than you're supposed to. If, in fact, the class is glad that you end early, you should resign your calling as a teacher immediately because you're not doing your job effectively. If you follow the tips in this paper, you will be an excellent teacher and the class will wish that you could go on teaching for at least an extra hour beyond the limits of your class time. Another step on the road to being such a teacher is to over-prepare your lessons. If you have 40 minutes, prepare at least an hour's worth of material. Now, this doesn't mean that you should teach at your normal speed and end up cutting off the last 20 minutes each week. What it does mean is that you should try as hard as you can to cram in that full hour's worth of material into your allotted 40 minutes of class time. This will go a long way towards spicing up your lessons and making them interesting for your students. The goal is to flood the mental circuits of the students and get their synapses popping with so much information that they are so busy scrambling to comprehend it all that they cannot possibly be bored. You see, that's what I keep coming back to. That is the cardinal sin of Sunday school classes in the LDS Church and the one that this entire paper is designed to try and alleviate. Boredom. Make them have to gallop to keep up with you. Don't allow them to get lazy or relaxed. If you do, you will lose them. Number nine, be enthusiastic. Even though you've overprepared an abundance of exciting material for your class, it will still fall flat if you don't present it in an exciting way. You must not only teach exciting things, you must teach exciting things in an exciting manner. Although it is absolutely essential and true that you must be enthusiastic to succeed as a teacher, it's one of those principles that is so obvious that its inclusion in this paper is a little like asking your class, how can we apply this in our lives? Incredibly obvious and a waste of time. Number 10, base your lessons in the scriptures. One of the things Bruce R. McConkie said with which I agree most is 
The truth of all things is measured by the scriptures. That's page 765 in Mormon Doctrine. Because a teacher's primary duty is to teach truth, the scriptures should be the basis for our lessons. Have students read a lot of scriptural passages during your lesson, but not so many as will hamper your teaching time unacceptably. This will give the meeker members of the class the feeling of participating in the class without calling on them to put themselves on the line by giving an answer to one of your somewhat difficult questions. Avoid asking for volunteers to read scriptures, though. The cumulative time spent waiting for hesitant volunteers to find the passage and raise their hand is prohibitive. Call on students by name and ask them to read the desired passages. Some teachers prepare slips of paper with the scriptural references already written on them and hand them out at the beginning of class. This idea has its positive side, but I personally don't use them because I'm rarely certain as to exactly what I'm going to want to have read during class anyway. This falls under the heading of leaving room for the Spirit. Even though you prepare and even over-prepare, you have to leave room for the Spirit to guide you into what it is you're going to talk about and what it is you're going to focus on and in which scriptures you're going to read in order to support those different concepts. Number 11. Don't bear testimony at the end of each class. Boy, I am really on the road to apostasy, aren't I? Don't bear testimony at the end of each class. I hope I don't cause too many people heart failure over this one. I know we're often encouraged as teachers to bear testimony of principles taught at the end of each class. I think that's another crock. In the first place, it's highly unlikely you have a testimony worth bearing of every principle of the gospel you may be called on to teach from week to week. In the second place, even if you do have such a hyper-expansive testimony, bearing it at the end of every class would trivialize it and make it meaningless. The testimony born at the end of each class becomes not a personal witness of the gospel, but a bunch of words that you say for no other reason than that you're supposed to. It has the effect of taking something of major importance and devaluing it to the point that people in church listen for the words, I would like to bear my testimony, the same way that people listening to a political speech listen for the words, in conclusion. It is by and large no longer a revealing of your most important and deep-seated feelings regarding the gospel, but a cue to the class that they can begin packing up and preparing to go on to their next meeting. When you're done with your class, just say thank you and sit down. I don't know if you're as surprised hearing these thoughts about teaching the gospel as I am reading them. My goodness, I'd forgotten about all this stuff. Number 12, don't close in the name of the Savior. I actually wrote that. Don't close in the name of the Savior. I wonder why I wrote that. Let's go on. When I began teaching gospel doctrine class, I closed each class with my testimony. Naturally, that testimony ended with the name of the Savior. Gradually, I began to feel that bearing my testimony each week on cue trivialized it, and so I ceased doing that. Due to the nagging voice of tradition, however, I still felt it necessary to end the class in the name of the Savior. After some thought and a thorough search of the scriptures, however, I discovered that not only do the scriptures not teach that such a closing of the class period is necessary, but actually mandates against such frequent use of the name of the Savior. And here I quote from the Doctrine and Covenants. 
Before Melchizedek's day, the Melchizedek priesthood was called the holy priesthood after the order of the Son of God, but out of respect or reverence to the name of the supreme being, to avoid the too frequent repetition of his name, they, the church, in ancient days called that priesthood after Melchizedek, or the Melchizedek priesthood, and that's from DNC 107 verses 4 and 5. Somehow, I conclude this part, somehow closing each class with the name of the Savior seems to flaunt the intent of that passage. Number 13. Feel free to alter your teaching material to suit your class. This comment applies with equal force to the amount of material to be covered each week and the order in which that material is to be presented. For example, the year I was teaching the New Testament in Gospel Doctrine class, 1991, I noted that the teacher's manual devoted a full half of the year to the Gospels. The rest of the year was given over to the remainder of the New Testament. My first thought was that this seemed disproportionate. The number of pages which comprise the Gospels in the LDS version of the Bible is 178. The rest of the New Testament, on the other hand, consists of 235 pages. Right there, it seemed inequitable to give half the time to the Gospels when they comprise substantially less than half of the New Testament. But to take this line of thought further, the Gospels in reality talk about essentially the same things regarding the mortal ministry of Jesus Christ. So I took the number of pages in Matthew, the longest of the Synoptic Gospels, at 54 pages, and added a liberal 46 extra pages to include material found in other Gospels, but not in Matthew. That's obviously just an estimate, though I think it was a liberal estimate and not conservative to add an additional 46 pages to the 54 pages of Matthew. Obviously, I'm going for 100 pages. The result was that there are only 100 pages of material that need to be taught from the Gospels compared to 235 pages from the rest of the New Testament. That is almost a 2 to 5 ratio. And yet the Sunday School Manual gives 50% of the time to material from the Gospels. My last link in this reasoning chain is that it is my perception that virtually everybody in the church, no matter how well educated they are with regard to the doctrines of the Lord, inevitably know a good deal more about the material contained in the Gospels than they do about the material in the rest of the New Testament. It seemed to me a logical deduction that as a teacher, my priority should therefore be to emphasize the areas with which my students were least familiar, those areas constituting Acts, the Epistles, and the Revelation. Given all the above, I decided to rework the lesson schedule to comport with the needs of my students. My solution was not complicated. I simply doubled up the assignments dealing with the Gospels, covering two weeks' worth of material each week. That way, instead of completing the Gospels as late as the middle of the year, we were finished with them by the end of the first three months, leaving the last nine months free to concentrate on the areas of greatest need. As a natural result, this course also allowed me to cut in half the material I needed to cover per week from the non-Gospel part of the New Testament, thereby enabling me to emphasize those parts in greater detail. An example of the absurdities that the original schedule contained were that the teacher was expected to teach the entire book of Revelation in one 40-minute period. Right. Is it any wonder that members as a whole don't know anything about that important book? With my new schedule, I am able to devote three entire classes to the book of Revelation. The same problem existed for the book of Romans and the book of Hebrews. 
only one 40-minute period to cover each of them. My new schedule allows three weeks for each. This is merely an instance of how material can be altered to suit the needs of your class. You are limited only by your imagination and your ability to perceive the needs of your class. Number 13, <laughs> abuse your class on a regular basis. Oh my Lord, I can hardly wait to find what I wrote here. Abuse your class. Well, at least it's number 13. Abuse your class on a regular basis. Most classes, due to their slothfulness when it comes to studying the scriptures and related church documents, richly deserve to be abused on a regular basis. Should you have such feelings about your class, don't repress them. Abuse your students freely and frequently. They will love you for it, except the ones who hate you. One time in class, I quoted from the King Follett Discourse as part of the lesson. In introducing the quote, I asked how many had read the King Follett Discourse. Two hands raised. The rest looked at me with glassy eyes like a herd of cows. I then asked in a despairing tone how many had even heard of the King Follett Discourse. One hand went up in addition to the other two. I was incredulous. I was amazed. I was disgruntled. I said, are you kidding me? You may as well not even be a member of the church if you don't know what the King Follett Discourse is. The King Follett Discourse is only the greatest sermon ever preached by Joseph Smith, delivered shortly before his martyrdom. If you're not going to even read that, you may as well not be a Mormon. Well, there were a few grumblings in the ranks, but due to the fact, I guess everybody didn't actually love me for it. Well, there were a few grumblings in the ranks, but due to the fact that my comments were laced with humor, nobody threw anything in my direction. The fact is, they realized I was right, and they were wrong, and they knew they deserved it. It was on a similar principle that the Savior was able to drive a far superior number of money changers out of the temple precincts because he was right and they knew he was. Several months passed. I was once again quoting from the King Follett Discourse as a part of the lesson. I asked the class how many people had gotten a hold of the King Follett Discourse and read it since the last time I upbraided them. The same two people raised their hands as had the first time. Other than that, the reaction once again reminded me of milking time at the farm. I paraphrased the scriptures. Ye are a hard-hearted and stiff-necked Sunday school class. Several more months passed. Once more I quoted from the King Follett Discourse. I again asked how many had read it. Perhaps three people raised their hands. My response, I am reminded of the words of John the Baptist. O ye generation of vipers, how can ye escape the damnation of hell? Not so many people laughed. It's all well and good to laugh at such a declaration when it's given by John the Baptist to the Pharisees, but it isn't so much fun to be on the receiving end. If the shoe fits, try it on your class for size so they can see how it feels. The point is that they know they're in the wrong. My God, I was such a judgmental Mormon. But I repeat myself, which means I was a good Mormon in many respects. Thank goodness I've left that part behind me at least. Or at least I hope I have. Offer the gift that God would give us to see ourselves as others see us. The point is that they know they're in the wrong. And if a teacher doesn't come along and tell the students that the teacher knows the students are in the wrong, that they are slothful and lazy, who will? And if the students, well, maybe it's a good thing if nobody says it. And if the students are not exposed in their slothful habits and laziness, they will be contented going along at that same pace, thinking that nobody sees them and that they can get away with not doing anything. 
Nobody ever said being a teacher was easy or a popularity contest. Boy, that reminds me of what President Nelson said recently, that prophets will teach you the truth, but they're not always popular. Well, guess what? Assholes aren't popular either, and it's not because they teach the truth. So just because people aren't popular does not necessarily mean that they're teaching the truth. Okay, I digress. Going on with the paper, nobody ever said being a teacher was easy or a popularity contest. But the ironic thing is that the more I abuse my class, the more they love me because they realize I'm telling them the truth. I'm telling it to them like it is, and they admire that and want to hear more of it. By the way, this is all just my surmisings. I did not actually take a poll of my class. In other words, this is not scientific research. I'm relating. This is probably more wishful thinking than anything else. Number 14, design the class so that it is not a substitute for personal scripture study. This is a good one. Design the class so that it is not a substitute for personal scripture study. It is too easy to fall into the trap of having a class that simply rehearses the contents of the scriptures that were supposed to have been read by the students that week. Well, if a teacher is just going to tell the students what they were supposed to have already read, what motivation does the student have for reading it on his or her own prior to class? The goal is to design the class so that it doesn't repeat what the scriptures say, but so that the scripture reading assignment is a launching pad for the material you will present. Don't give in to the temptation to explain the obvious passages of scripture, the passages that any fool could understand if he just took the time to read them. Concentrate on the difficult passages in the material instead, and also present material that builds upon, not substitutes for, the reading assignment. Special care should be taken to avoid the well-known scriptures that we hear quoted to monotony. 1 Nephi 3.7, Moroni 10.4, and 2 Thessalonians 2.1-3, for instance. That is, unless you have an unusual insight concerning that scripture to share with the class. Too often, classes degenerate into a reading of the well-known passages out of the reading assignment, then patting ourselves on the back for being so well-conversant with the scriptures. In such cases, a little knowledge can indeed be a dangerous thing, especially when knowledge of a handful of scriptures masquerades as knowledge of all the scriptures. We would be well advised to paraphrase Alexander Pope to drink deep of the scriptures or taste them not at all. Number 15, teach wrong concepts occasionally. Wow, number 15, teach wrong concepts occasionally. Now hold on there, you may be saying, isn't the responsibility of a teacher to teach the truth? Didn't you just say that it was? Of course I said that the teacher's primary obligation is to teach the truth. And one of the most fundamental truths that we must teach our students is to think for themselves. Oh my gosh, this is so not orthodox. One of the most fundamental truths that we must teach our students is to think for themselves and not to accept something as true simply because the teacher says so. This concept can best be taught by occasionally teaching the class false concepts and seeing if anybody catches you at it. If they don't figure out you're trying to pass off false doctrine on them, and usually they won't, you simply wait until toward the end of the class period and announce to the class that something you told them that day was not correct. What was it? This proclamation is generally greeted by looks of chagrin and puzzlement. When nobody can figure out what it was, you go ahead and explain it to them. 
This will tend not only to teach them that they should take nobody's word for anything, but will also cause them to pay closer attention in the future. One time I did this, we were speaking in class of certain pseudepigraphic writings which were apocryphal in nature. I then asked the class if the Lord had revealed anything in relation to the apocrypha and how we should view it. Some bright soul, I believe it was the stake patriarch, paraphrased Doctrine and Covenants section 97 to the effect that there were many things in the Apocrypha that were true, but that it nevertheless contains some things that are not true, and that we should therefore read it with the Spirit so that we might discern the difference. I continued to teach for about 20 minutes, then remarked to the class that I had taught them something that was not true, and challenged them to expose me for the liar I was. When everyone had had their share of looking puzzled, I told them that the Apocrypha, to which the Lord referred in section 97 of the Doctrine and Covenants, has absolutely nothing to do with the Pseudepigrapha that we were discussing. Rather, the Apocrypha, capital A, of section 97 refers to that specific collection of books found in the Catholic Bible, but not in modern versions of the Protestant Bible, none of which books we were talking about and quoting from in class. This is just an example of the type of thing that you can do to keep your class on their toes. In conclusion then, there's those magic words I mentioned. In conclusion then, I should like to bear my testimony, and here I'm going to bear my testimony as well. So much tongue-in-cheek going on here. It's hard to distinguish what is serious from what is tongue-in-cheek. In conclusion then, I should like to bear my testimony of the above principles, although I don't really know much about them, and I'm actually writing this paper for my own benefit as much as for anyone out there who might read it. I think that if we would only ask ourselves how we can apply these principles in our own lives, the world would be a much nicer place in which to write lists on blackboards. I bear you this testimony in the name of Wally Oppenheimer. Amen. And that's the 26-page paper I wrote dated October 25, 1991, titled Remarks on Teaching the Gospel Doctrine Class. Any similarities between the Radio Free Mormon who wrote that paper over 30 years ago and the Radio Free Mormon who's addressing you today are entirely coincidental. Well, that's about all for tonight. Until next time, this is Radio Free Mormon, signing off the air.